Chris. And I'm Andrew, and welcome to episode 10 of Video Games Cover to Cover. Uh, before we get started, we'd like to take a minute to give a shout out to Guildfellows and Let's Be Legendary, a couple of D&D podcasts. If you happen to be here from either one of those podcasts, we'd like to say welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you're not from either of those, uh, we highly recommend you check them out. They're both good listens. I en- happen to enjoy both of them and try to have been trying to keep up. And they've both been big supporters of our show, and we really appreciate it. And we'd love to return the favor, so please give them a, a listen. Exactly. So if you're like me and want a little more D&D in your life, we hope you give them a listen. With that, how about that finale? Yeah, so just starting off with that, uh, this is probably going to be our last episode about Final Fantasy X-2 because we have reached the end of the game, and we're, this is also going to discuss the last mission briefly. Uh, so just, I guess, heads up for anybody who's concerned about spoilers for any of that. Yeah, the the end of the game and last mission, because the end of the game I didn't realize was only like an hour after you were done, which I guess makes sense. It's just there's there's so much to kind of unpack there. I didn't get 100%. Yeah, neither did I. Somehow we both wound up missing some stuff. Well, in my case, uh, Chris had already said that he wasn't getting 100%, and I had already been kind of skeptical that somehow I had missed something, and once he said that so- that he had missed it, I stopped worrying about it as much and just went to the end of the game. But I was awfully confused because it sure seemed like I got 100% at first. Yeah, we, exactly. We can talk about that when we get there, but I asked you a question. Did you happen to keep track of how many hours you had played the total game, not including last mission? Yeah, it was about 95 hours when I looked. So, I have 199 hours of total gameplay. And let's be honest, 95 hours is already an extremely long time for most games, uh, other than maybe like Persona or some of the other really, really long ones like Witcher 3. So the fact that you more than doubled that (laughs) is pretty remarkable and says a lot about just how elaborate this game actually can be well and that's what i'm trying to get at is it's infinitely more frustrating that i put that much time and effort into this game and i have no idea what i missed because i checked multiple hundred percent guides i read through the entire guide we were doing again word by word to ensure that i didn't forget anything at all i did absolutely everything there's three things that i didn't do one of them was i never went back and beat the last cactar completely for the last time but i read in multiple places that you didn't have to beat that last cactar 400 it was only for a garment grid i didn't do the thunder plains dungeon two more times because once again the guides all of them specifically said oh you don't have to do this it's just an optional thing for additional treasure which i didn't need at that point because i had already beat major numerous in creature creator and have 
an infinite number of Iron Dukes. And then there was one other thing that I didn't do. Uh, I think it was the Meehan High Road bonus dungeon. No, I did Meehan High Road bonus dungeon. There was one other... Oh, man, there was one other thing, but I'm blanking on what it was now. I think it was something in the Thunder Plains. I wrote it down. Also, as far as the Thunder Plains go, that that one dungeon specifically that he's talking about that you have to do two more times is absolutely miserable to try to complete. Like, the guy is talking about things like, you need to keep track of the exact amount of gold you and EXP you've gotten from every fight in the game in the dungeon and things like that, because there are puzzles that require you to know this. And that is just a level of absurdity that I've never seen a, a video game ask me to try to remember exactly how much I had when I started of something so that I could compare it back. Like that's, that's absurd. The other thing I didn't do in the game was I didn't defeat all the thunder planes towers like we had talked about previously. Oh, right. You didn't. We didn't get 100% of those because we only did five, the minimum we had to do. And it said everywhere, once again, that that was the minimum. And so that's why I'm even, like, infinitely upset because I've spent so much time and energy into this game, and I still wasn't able to get 100% following a guide. Now, mind you, the guide definitely had mistakes, and there were things that, I thought were were incorrect. Maybe there's something I skipped because the guide also says there's three videos after you go into the far plane the first time where you go and you you first you talk to Buddy and he tells you I don't remember what he tells you. I don't remember that part. You you talk to Buddy about something. Uh there's a Oh, bit- it's brother and buddy and they're talking about uh why it's called the Gullwings. Oh that that was before the far plane. Brother, the the thing with brother and buddy afterwards is when they're talking about having to recruit new crew and stuff because if people were going to leave. Oh, that's right. And they were wondering if Yuna was going to leave and they were hoping that she wouldn't. And the, in this case, buddy was being kind of a creep because he was the one that said, well, hopefully we can get attractive girls. And brother's like, I what? I think brother specifically says there isn't a girl more attractive than Yuna. <laughs> Uh, so, well, he's still kind of a creep there, but he's, listen, you know, he likes Yuna. We both know that. I I will say, I mean, that's that's a, a little of the creepy stuff, but like he has to hit the game's credit. Brother has been better after that scene we got at the beginning of chapter five, where he confesses like why he likes Yuna. Well, so what I did was I beat the game again. But I gave the sphere to New Yevon this time. New Yevon honestly seems like the better choice having played the game again. Only because every time you go back to Mushroom Rock, they essentially attack you immediately. Yeah, I was attacked in Bevel at one point when you were specifically charging their area to steal stuff. I was literally just visiting Mushroom Rock after I gave the sphere away. And they're basically like, get out of here, New Yevon scum. And they're immediately attacking you. New Yevon or or Youth Leagues definitely seems to be more aggressive than New Yevon in general. And that does line up with uh, like the stuff Payne was saying, for example, about 
the youth league being the ones who are being the aggressors. Now, if I remember correctly, I think it was chapter two, even before the finale. But like any time during that chapter, if you went back, they would try to attack you in Bavel. But after chapter two, they stopped doing that. I don't know if the if the youth league did. Uh, you do go back there once and it's just closed off because even when you go back there in other chapters, it's closed off for the rest of the game, except for in chapter four, when they would be talking to you the whole time with the calm spheres. Instead, they just throw the sphere in the ocean. Right. As opposed to which reminds me the spheres were placed in chapter three, right? Getting those the outfits getting the outfits you're right for the syndicate was in chapter two meaning shinra because i know for a fact i visited mount gagazette not the hit hot springs that implies that shinra just went up there and installed a sphere a calm sphere up on the hot springs of his own will which really makes that entire thing even more like slightly creepy than it already was. Because it's like, dude, you went up there on your own, took time out of your busy schedule setting up all these comm spheres while we're doing our other missions to just be like, hey, check it out. Here's this, here's this sphere that I'm putting here. Because the Ronzo stuff, that doesn't occur until chapter five, right? When they actually go up there. No, that ha- that does happen in Chapter 3, where the part where you fight uh, Garrick does happen in Chapter 3. Got it. Okay, so no, we did visit then. We don't go to the Hot Springs specifically, but we still probably go past I mean, we you go past, past it, it yeah. which is enough to get the the sphere. As long as you enter an area where it's adjacent, he'll run in there and you'll see a, a screen of him. So, okay, I get it. But still, that thing was still weird. I mean, a little bit, again, even more so just because of how many scenes there are in the hot springs, and it's hard not to feel like a little bit of a creeper watching like people going swimming and stuff. So you had brought up the barrelized sphere that I hadn't watched last session. Yeah. Okay. That sure was a thing, huh? <laughs> so he was secretly working with Seymour somewhere? Yeah, it would have been... So it was after... The incident, and it's when you're first getting to Guado Salam in 10, because at the very end of the sphere, after the conversation with Barilai, um, one of the other Guado comes in, I think it's probably uh, Trommel, I don't remember exactly, but it's probably him because it was always him, comes in and informs Seymour that the party is just crossed the moon flow and is getting ready to show up, and that's the, Guado Salam is the very next area. So when you were fighting Riku in that Machina, Barilai was basically having a secret conversation with Seymour. But there was never another sphere on that, so does that suggest that he had some part of Seymour's dickery? It's possible, but I kind of got the impression that given that you wind up killing Seymour fairly quickly after that, because that happens in Guadalajara, doesn't it, the first time you die when you kill him? Yes. N- no, you don't kill him. Do you kill him in Guadalajara? I thought you did time? because I thought he was unsent for the rest of the game after that because you have that fight with him and all the Guado carry him off and like are panicked about him and I thought he I thought the implication was he died there. That's right. That's right. He did die there the first time cuz 
you attack him in his quarters, I think. Yes. So the way I took it was he was going to work with Barrelai, but he never got the chance because he immediately suffered an unfortunate end and everything kind of changed after that. Because you find his father's soul or whatever pop out of the far plane. Right. And then he drops that sphere and then Yuna reads it and takes it upon herself to attack. I thought she attacked him in Bavel though. Well, I, I mean, thought they fight, went you, to Bavel right multiple after. times. I thought they went I thought you went to Bavel right after that and We're, she fought him on her own because she goes with him. No, that's right because she goes with him after Makalania Woods. He wasn't in Guadalajara when you showed up the first time. You meet him in Jose because it's right after Makalania Woods. You don't you meet him in Guado Salam and then you go do the Thunderplane stuff and then you go back because she's going to make her decision cuz he talks about marrying her and then she says I'll give you my answer later. It doesn't matter. Regardless, maybe he never had a chance to fight Seymour. Well, I guess more or less I just I don't know when he would have been involved otherwise because there's no opportunity for Beryl I to have done anything that I can think of, because at that point, Seymour goes rogue, basically. I will say, after the Den of Woe, I don't agree with Shu Yin at all, obviously, but I get it. Being forced to relive that moment when he died with Len over and over and over for a thousand years, yeah, that would change me a lot too and it kind of made it sound like it was almost like a the memory was experiencing it over and over and over not like it was actually him and it built up so much hate for so much amount of time that the fireflies in the area just kind of made him real which i think is why he didn't have to follow the same rules as a normal unsent that very well could be yes it definitely implied when you were in the Den of Woe, which honestly was one of the creepier areas in the entire game in general. Like, it just had a very creepy vibe to it, and then all the stuff you're seeing was not great. <laughs> yeah. But, so, you you get to see... So, so whatever the Den of Woe is, uh, they never really established, like, what its deal is that makes it so special, but there's a lot of fireflies in there. Not unlike the Far Plane, but they basically everybody who's been uh, is just capturing a bunch of memories. I don't know why Shuyans were specifically captured because everybody else that you see were people who had directly been in the Den of Woe. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I think the Den of Woe was somehow connected to all of these places. That could be. I mean, they established that the far plane is basically connected to everything. Well, so they said that Vegnagun was in the Den of Woe and then Every single time somebody tries to attack the Vegna gun, it activates and leaves. So it was in there at some point, and then it moved to Bavel? Possibly. I mean, that would make the most sense. It showed up in the basement of Bavel, and then it left again when... But they died in the basement of, of Bavel. Yes. So I really don't know why he was there. But regardless, whatever the reason, being trapped in that area reliving your past over and over and over every day for a thousand years. Yeah, I I get it. I, that would, I don't know how I would handle that, but 
coming to the conclusion that all life has to be exterminated. If I you, would hope to think that I would never come to that conclusion, but you have no idea what you're going to think after reliving you and your lover's death every day for a thousand years. And not just your death, your very violent death at what is essentially murder over and over again. Yeah. Because it's not like he died peacefully in his bed or whatever. And he knows that it's because of all the fighting. So having the storyline of the typical guy that thinks that all fighting has to end by giving everybody a common enemy or wiping everyone out. Cause it turns out Vegna guns actually just a giant gun. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a very literal name. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's a very clearly something that was built to destroy sin or it was very clearly something that was built to wipe out an entire continent. And in this case, potentially Xanar. I was going to say, yeah, I, I think it's original construction because when you fight it as the final boss, I mean, we'll get to that fight more specifically, but there is a point where it just opens up its mouth and a gigantic, like, super cannon comes out of it. And if you, apparently, the gun. Yeah. And if you hang out there too long and take too long in that fight, as I understand it, the gun will eventually fire and you get a bad ending. Really? Yes. Ooh, I never saw that. Yeah, there is a bad ending of if you just, like, screw around and don't actually get defeated, but if you just wait too long, eventually the gun will power up and go off and you get a you get a bad ending. Did you happen to watch that? Uh, I did not. I just read that. <laughs> okay. We should, well, I will go back and watch that then. I, 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 we should definitely do that, though, yes. Right when you enter the far plane, I think it's the first time, either that or it's the second time, Shinra says something very specific. Yeah, it's when you come out of the far plane after having gone through the first area, because there's a save point that will let you leave. He specifically mentions the far plane has limitless energy, and it can be potentially harvested for energy, but that would take several generations. And then even Yuna talks about, you know, maybe we could build a super city where the light, like, like a new Xanarkin, basically, where everything is technologically advanced and the city never sleeps and stuff. And it's pretty hard not to immediately associate that with Midgar from Final Fantasy VII, given what else Shinra says. And the that theory that we've discussed a couple of times where Final Fantasy X is a prequel to Final Fantasy VII, it's hard not to come to that conclusion with that last conversation. I can really see where they made that jump. Whoever the lead person on this game was maybe wanted to heavily imply that. Yeah, because at that point, it's, it definitely goes well beyond just a, oh, well, they named him the same. It's just an Easter egg, like how they always have a seed in every game and stuff. And at that point, they're intentionally drawing those parallels. Which kind of makes me sad that we never got a Final Fantasy ten three because apparently it was something they were potentially working on. Really? I didn't know that was something. I read some articles on it, and I guess it was something that they somewhat recently came out and said, yeah, we're, we really don't have any plans to continue this. That's interesting because there's a conversation with Riku that you, get, you only get if you are basically on the 100% track that even though we somehow didn't still get 100%. And that's the thing. Like, the guide said that if you see that scene, you have to see that scene if you're at 100 or at, you're at 95%. And it says if you're at 95%, 
you're perfect so far. I was, and I got that scene. So I don't know what I messed up between 95 and and, and 100. I really have no clue what I didn't do. Maybe I skipped something or maybe I didn't press a button right. I, I really have no clue what I did to screw up the 100%. Yeah, but so this particular scene with Riku is another one of the scenes. There are three scenes when you come back from the far plane, depending on how far you've gotten. That was one of them. The, I mean, the Shinra scene was one of them. The scene with Buddy and Brother that we were talking about was one of them. And then there's a scene with Riku where she's basically lamenting that she feels like she's getting left behind because everybody else is changing around her. And then Yuna makes a comment of, well, this was my story. Maybe the next story will be yours. And that does sound like there were at least thoughts of a 10-3 at some point. And it would have been all about Riku, and it would have been awesome. I'm pretty... I can, I'll give you some theories about what would have happened in that game near the end. Okay. I can't wait. So the implications that this was before or that this was a prequel to Final Fantasy VII, there's so much there that it's hard, specifically assuming that Ten Two is canon, it's kind of hard to say that that's not the case. Yeah, and like we touched on before given that they're going to have three full games now for final fantasy 7 each one of which is supposed to be as long as a regular game if they want to touch on that and explore this will be a great opportunity they will have plenty of time for that maybe the first game instead of being maybe it's closer to a well i know it's not because i'm pretty sure the beginning of it is still cloud right away cloud i mean i don't think they would change the beginning of the game is going to be Midgard. I like that. That's pretty iconic. But in, maybe no, I agree leave. with that. But I was thinking it could have been more of a transitionary period. Yeah, but they could they could just do flashbacks because they already did some flashbacks in the original release of Seven. That's a whole lot of flashbacks for well, three games. Yeah, I know. But you, I mean, you don't have to do that much. It could just be a matter of like the first two games could be the whole story of Final Fantasy Seven. And the last game could be a prequel, or they could start this game, and then they could go back and do a prequel as a flashback, Yeah, and then have the end of the game. Who knows, honestly? Nobody really knows at this point, because nothing is out yet. We have to wait until, I think it's March of 2020? Uh, That sounds about right. Which, I that's... It will be one of those games that I buy immediately and start playing. <laughs> so I showed you the ending where you beat Trema. Yeah, which is the ending of the Via Infinito side mission, by the way, which I got about halfway through it because you you have to get to at least floor 40 in order to do the Den of Woe. And that was something I was explicitly not going to skip, even when I was getting to the end and decided that this was no longer worth it. So when when you fight or after the fight with Trema, Actually, I think it's even before when he actually says this, he talks about how he was the guy who destroyed all this or who took all the spheres away. The thing that directly led to the formation of the Youth League in New Yevon. He said that they destroyed them and they became pyreflies. Yeah, which implies that spheres are just some kind of concentrated energy. Maybe that's what Xanarkin was doing. Maybe. And again, that. And I think I, I know I mentioned this before at one point, but that sounds an awful lot like what Materia are in Final Fantasy VII. They're little gems that are concentrated energy that give you powers. 
So, and it's just possible that, you know, Xanarkin knew how to do that. And it just takes Shinra generations to figure it out. But yeah, that, that very well could be the case. Which Shenra kind of seems really evil. Yeah, there's some scenes with the creature creator, uh, which I didn't completely finish, but I got pretty far into, and I know Chris actually did do everything in there, because that wasn't part of the scope for the 100% anyway, but it is so involved and interesting that it, it wound up being a lot of fun. But there are definitely, it has its own separate plot, and yeah, Shinra in, in some of those scenes uh, comes off as a really not great dude. So when you're doing specifically the Fiend Cup, I think in international releases it was called the Demon Cup. Probably just because the translation for 10, they probably just changed Demon to Fiend because a lot of stuff like that happens is like, you know, American audiences don't want to hear Demon, so we'll change that to Fiend. I could see them doing that. Yeah, that definitely seems like a thing that would happen. So at least in the original 10 release... And at that point, that's just what they're called, and so we're just going to stick with that. When you start down the whole Fiend Cup stuff, you come across these things that basically say, hey, you need to capture the Fiend that kind of ruined things for everybody. So apparently it turns out that Ultima and Omega were both brothers, which is why their skins look very similar. I don't know if you saw both of them. I have, I mean, I have, and they still look pretty similar to what they were in 10 also. But I think one of them, I know that I'm pretty sure Omega was the king of the fiends. And I know Ultima was the one that ruined things for everybody. One of them wanted to basically kill all humans. And the other one basically said, no, I don't want to do that. So Ultima was the one that ruined things for everybody. And he basically sealed himself away and sealed the fiend gate in between the human and the fiend world. So when you release Ultima, the things come up out of the ground and start to kind of take him away. And Shinra stops that and essentially kills them. And then Ultima's kind of in like this weird stuck situation. And then he basically murders Ultima and that opens up the fiend gate. And so he's like, Haha, you know, I've started everything up again. Then Omega joins the, the cup. You beat Omega. Then you release him. And Shinra's like, okay, finally I've, I've killed everything. And it seems like we're going to be at war for a long time. And it's all thanks to me. And then he goes, you know, I still just don't know enough about fiends, but I think I have a new way. And he begin he becomes a fiend human hybrid, in this case, Almighty Shinra. Yeah, he like fuses himself to Omega Weapon. Which is also what the Faith seem to have did with their fiends. And notice how they basically just became a human version of so that just it it kind of implies all of that is there, but but that does lend a lot of credence to what we were talking about, that the Aeons really are just the Faith fusing with an existing fiend to create a new thing. So Shinra seems super mega evil. 
Yeah, and then you have to beat up Almighty Shinra after having defeated the weapons and done, done all this, and then he goes back to normal. And at the very end of Hiyu releasing him, he just turns to look away and goes, I'm just a kid. Bro, okay, you're just an evil kid who's bent on murder and world domination. So at this point, it's a lot less De- Dexter and a lot more Mandark. Oh, yeah. Shinra's super evil. So after all these disparate plot threads are tied up, we finally go fight Vagnagun for the finale. And as we discussed before, Shu Yin is currently possessing Barali after previously having been possessing news through all of the game up until like chapter three. And for years before then. It doesn't really say why, although News did say that he rigged his body to kill both of them. It sounds like he put, like, a bomb in his stomach or something. Yeah, maybe Chu Yin, like, knew that and just said, uh, I'm out. This dude's more screwed up than I am. <laughs> yeah, because News has been wanting to kill himself the whole game, and I did actually really like the scene, so when you're finally getting ready to go fight Vagnagon, all the groups kind of come together. You get, uh, Nuj and Barali and the syndicate shows up, which was nice. Nuj and Gipple. Nuj and Gipple, yes. You're right. And then LeBlanc and the syndicate show up. And uh, to to the game's credit, I really liked when Yuna was basically like, when, when Nuj was talking about this plan to make um, Shuyin come back and repossess him and then essentially commit suicide to kill them both. And then Yuna's just like, no, your plan sucks. We're not doing your plan. That was awesome. I loved that. And she's like, you know what? Your plan sucks. Yeah, that was one of that was probably my favorite bit for Yuna the entire game, because she was just like, no, no, you're wrong. This is dumb. We're not doing that. And it was nice for her to like really, truly stand up and say, no. And then she even she, she goes, you know, when we were doing the pilgrimage, we thought there was no other option. We had to sacrifice. That was that was all there was. And it turns out there was another way. I'm not going to let us make make sacrifices for no reason again. We're not doing that. So the alternate strategy is the one that Yuna wanted to do the whole time, which was basically show Shu Yin how much Len loved him and make him feel feels until he gives up, basically. <laughs> and again, to... I, I want to say, I, I liked how everybody's immediately like, okay, we're all going to split up and take on different parts of Vagnagon. And granted, literally nobody but YRP is able to defeat their parts and you wind up having to go help them. But I like that they were at least willing to try. Yeah, they all wanted to, to be a part of it and they all wanted to help. Admittedly, Vagnagon was really above all of their pay grades. We just needed to distract it while we killed each piece individually. Yeah, and that's basically what it winds up being because, you know, the syndicate gets its butt kicked, but they they stall it long enough for Yunariku and Pain to finish off the tail and then move their way up, and that's kind of how it goes for each chunk. Because there's a, the final boss fight is actually like five phases long, which is really long by almost compared to like any game I can remember. Although the last one is well, almost it's really game. four phases, yeah. and then it pulls the same thing that Final Fantasy X did. Yes, but you, I think you could still actually lose the fight against Shuyin, whereas you, it was physically impossible to lose against Yevon. 
Pretty sure you could have lost. If your whole party died, I'm pretty sure you could have lost. You got all, everybody had auto res the entire fight. You can just stand there and wait in 10 and they will come back up. Oh, really? Yeah, in, in 10 with the Evan fight, everybody has auto res the entire fight. And I remember because I think it was the very first time I ever beat it on the PS2, somebody went down and then immediately got right back up. It just does the uh, the res like life spell and they immediately get up. And you like I, as far as I can tell, it is physically impossible to lose the Evan fight. Okay. And maybe there's something like that with Shuyan, but I honestly never had anybody fall. But I I got the impression that one theoretically. I absolutely you still destroyed Shuyan oh, and Vegnagun. Yes. Yeah, and same. the greatest thing yeah, because it turns out Shuyin is the final the final boss. But in reality, we all listening to this podcast know that it was Maeklin the whole time. You don't see him, but he was there. You don't see him again. But he will would have been back in three. <laughs> anyway, the fight with Shuyin, I think pretty much confirms the other theory we'd been floating around that Titus was just the dream version of Shuyin because the moves that Shuyin uses are all exactly the same moves that Titus had. He has all of Titus's limit breaks and stuff. Which is interesting because he's got Blitz Ace and stuff, so he's just... He was a Blitzball player, too, and he was constantly... I mean, apparently not to the level of Waka, but his moves involved, like, a Blitzball at some point... And I'm like, oh, okay, buddy, you're just playing a a sports game in the middle of a fight. I mean, I guess it worked for Titus. It might as well work for Shuyin. <laughs> Except in Titus, he had in Titus's case, he had somebody throw him the ball. In Shuyin's case, a ball just materializes out of nowhere, and he kicks it. The pyreflies made the ball. Clearly. But yeah, so he does the exact same limit breaks as Titus, which pretty much just confirms that Titus was the dream version of Shuyin. I had, and in the end, I had Pain and Riku both using Darkness. And then I had Yuna in Mascot, because Yuna in Mascot is, honestly, I think the most powerful healer in the game. Because you get, Reninja, which is casting auto-regen on everybody and haste on everybody. And it only costs like 24 MP. Wow. So it's super powerful. And then you can cast Kyrja on everybody, which does, I think, Kira on everyone and Isuna on everyone. Awesome. So I would just spam Kyrja. I, I would do Reninja first, so I would get haste on everyone. And then I would cast Kyrja on everyone every round, and then just have Riku and Pain hit Shuyin. Riku got the final hit on Shuyin and learned death. <laughs> it was the greatest thing because all you see is Riku go. Bah, darkness! Shuyin dies and learn death. <laughs> yes! I actually had, uh, I think Pain was in Mascot. Yuna was doing Dark Knight, and Riku was doing White Mage. And the only reason for that was I was having everybody learn all the skills they could use in their mascot forms. 
and Payne had already finished both of hers because they just happened to be jobs that I had already had her do in pre earlier in the game. Yeah, mascot worked very odd to me. You had to complete in order to get ribbon on mascot. Everybody had to do the first couple levels of warrior to get SOS protect. And then they had to go in and unlock all the abilities for each dress sphere that they had at the bottom. Yeah. Which don't get me wrong is really cool, but that's none of the other dress spheres act like that. So it was, and, and there really wasn't anything that kind of said, this is exactly what you do. So it was, it was a little odd, especially since it was the only one that worked like that in the entire game, at least that I'm aware of. Yeah, it is definitely odd, but given that it is the ultimate dress sphere, I can kind of forgive them for making it a little more complicated than the others. So, like I was saying before, I got two different endings. One ending the first time is when I thought I had 100% because it turns out the faith shows up at the very end. If you press X, you whistle or you hear whistles and then Yuna kind of looks around and you see the faith, which I think that purple faith kid from the first game and from this game, I think he's Bahamut. Because when you look at his back, because you you I, to my knowledge you've never seen his back before because I don't think you saw it in ten either, but when you look at his back he's got that circle thing that Bahamut clearly has above him that spins when he uses Mega Flare, so I think that kid the Faith kid was actually the Bahamut Faith. I think that's true, and honestly, I think I feel like I already knew that, and I think it's because he's the one that is like when you first meet him in ten. I'm pretty sure he's in. Pavel, where you get Bahamut. No, you first meet him at the beginning of the game because Titus sees him. Okay, yes, but like the first time you actually see him in the main game, like or not in the main game, but like in Spira proper, because yes, he shows up while Titus is still in Xanarkand. I'm pretty sure he talked to Titus at other points because he uh, talked to Titus throughout the whole game. There, there are parts throughout the whole game where he shows up, whether Titus is dreaming or whatnot. Because I know at one point he's during the whole Blitzball thing. When when Titus gets Blitz, when Titus does the whole mission to get Jack shot, you are you go back and you see a memory of him talking to his dad, and that kid is there in the background. Yeah, I know he shows up a lot, but even if that's not, even if what I just said is not true, yes, I hundred percent agree. I think that kid is was Bahamut. I I I completely agree. But so they kind of say, "Do you want to see him again?" And honestly, I kind of like that more than the alternative because the other and and then basically, you know, it goes into the end of the game where Gipple, Barilai and News are all having a giant speech instead of Yuna giving the speech this time. She just leaves. She's like, no, you know what? I'm done with this. I just want to go home. Yeah. And so her, Riku, and Payne all leave and go back to Besaid. Well, at least Yuna does. And they, you know, Barilai, Gipple, and News are kind of talking about how they made mistakes and they pitted, you know, brothers and sisters against one another. And 
that they're sorry and they're, you know, kind of going to go on like an apology tour or whatnot of apologizing to everybody. And then they get back to Besaid and Titus is there. He's it's the exact same thing at the end of the game in Final Fantasy Ten Two. It's him waking up in the water and swimming up. But then the video continues, or, or at the end of Final Fantasy Ten. Yeah, yeah, the, the, that was the after credit scene of Ten. If you waited around, yeah, it would show him like waking up and swimming. But then it continues, and it has you know Yuna show up, and then it goes into yeah, this is everything that we talked about in the true perfect ending. I actually went back and watched it. As did I. And then Titus talks about how he thinks he has a theory, and that's that the faith kind of jumbled all of their memories together and somehow brought him back. But they're not really sure, but they're pretty positive that he's back for good, at least for now. Yeah. It. Th so we had both thought we were getting the best ending because just having him be at Besaid and her, you know, jump off the airship and go swimming towards him in their happy reunion. And I did actually really like how that part of the ending comes full circle because it ends with her basically going back into the narration to imply that the entire time has been her narrating this story to Titus. Yeah. I really liked how they, how they close that gap like that. I did too. I, I, I really enjoyed that ending because the other ending doesn't really make sense. The other ending is basically what we were talking about in the last session. At the end of the game, she realizes that Titus has just been with her in her heart the whole time and that she can go on without seeing him again. And it kind of wraps up the story of the whole past theme and she's like, okay, well, you know, I, I get it. And it from that aspect, it kind of sounds like she's just thinking about him the whole time. Yeah. And she's not really telling him, but she's just speaking to him in her heart. And I kind of like both endings, but I really like the ending where he comes back more. Not just that the fact that Titus gets to come back, but it's more about her finally getting what she wants. Yeah. Both games are very much about her doing things for other people because she knows it's the right thing to do. Her finally getting something that she wants, I think, is a better ending for her in general. I agree. I think there are definite pros and cons to both because, like you just said, the the I guess what you would call normal ending where she acknowledges that he's just like been with her in her heart feels more appropriate to the themes like we had talked about like you br you just brought up that that feels more like the message the game has kind of been conveying about trying to move on and understanding the history and then moving forward so in that sense I, I I like that ending better on that sense but I do agree it is nice to see Yuna finally get you know the happiness that she's been striving for or that she's kind of not even been striving for has been denied for two games yeah. So I definitely agree with you. There are pros and cons to both. And the, oh, well, Titus is back now feels a little convenient, but also just something we kind of all expected was going to happen from the beginning anyway. So it's not like it was a surprise. 
Yeah, it does feel kind of odd. And it, and it only feels kind of odd because it's just not explained at all. And the whole platinum ending where he's talking about his theory doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to begin with. No. So it also doesn't imply that he's back for good. But I don't know. It just, I liked that whole ending better personally because it just felt like finally, like it, it feels like it's wrapping up Yuna's story in general. Whereas Titus was the main focus in the first game, minus the fact that we were on Yuna's journey. Yeah, but yeah, Titus is unquestionably the main character, even though it's Yuna's journey, for sure. Then Yuna goes off on her own journey, because this game is very is about her, and her, you know, helping everybody and kind of doing every, doing the same thing that she did in 10, and then over time kind of realizing at the end, and more so at the end of the game, kind of saying, I've wrapped everything up, there's nothing left for me to do, I really just want to go home. And then she finally gets what she wants, which is why I like it a little bit more because of that. Yeah, and that's fair. Like I said, I do definitely agree. It's a more satisfying ending for Yuna as a character, for sure. Not necessarily for the game in general, but I guess that just depends on the theme that they were going with in the game. Yeah. So, also, one thing that I just remembered while we were sitting here talking, did you notice that when... Shuyan and Len reunite, like, after you beat him when you're getting ready to finish up. He specifically, like, walks up to her and says something about how this is this this is our story, and Len says, but our story is over now. Yeah, I saw and that. And I just, uh, it's just yet another parallel to everybody constantly talks about their story. I mean, even Riku makes, there's that discussion about with Riku about making her own story that probably would have been 10-3 if that had happened, but the, you know... Titus in the first game is always talking about this is my story. He says that over and over. And then Yuna does the same thing in, in 10 2 about how this is it's my story now. And it's just that theme of stories and how everybody's life is a story. And, you know, your time on this planet is a story you get to tell where you are the main character. I just I don't know. I as someone who likes to write stories and just really value stories in general, I thought that was I really like that that's one of the messages that that's that the Final Fantasy X games have. Yeah, no, I really like that too. I hadn't really thought about it like that in, in, in so much detail, but that, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like the idea of, you know, people just going through their lives and telling their stories and, and sitting there. It's just like, you know, with my wife where, you know, I tell her things about what happened in my past and everything. It's, you know, not at all exciting about what's going on in, you know, Final Fantasy 10 or 10-2, but you know, I've had difficulty in my life. I've had things happen. Not every story has to be about saving the world, though. I mean, it mine does, and someday <laughs> I will save the we'll, world. We'll get there. But so far it hasn't. This is all your character building time before the big crisis. Save Chris, save the world. <laughs> There was one thing that, that I just realized we totally forgot about. Jose, when you fight that machine again. Oh, yeah. There was a scene that actually made me like pain 
a lot more than I did. Because I think I had mentioned it in another in another session that Payne just kind of felt like lazy. Not not her character was lazy, but it just felt like her story wasn't kind of all there. And I kind of got annoyed that there were so many times that she could have just spoke up and said, yeah, this is what's going on. But she just never does. And after you beat Jose for the second time, she talks about how going on this trip with Yuna and Riku has changed her to the point that she's able to talk again and she's able to have, you know, conversations about her past and everything. And it just made me like her so much more because she finally has that that moment where she opens up to Yuna and Riku and says, listen, you know, you've helped me a lot. You've, you've allowed me to share my story and, you know, the, the feel good of like, you're not laughing at me and you, it's just, I can tell you these things and you just look at them at face value. And I really liked that kind of wrap up there because, you know, she finally realizes that she can laugh with these two and, and talk to them about her life and everything that's happened. And they're just going to be like, yeah, you know, the things that are bad, that totally sucks. And we're sorry that happened to you, but the things that were good, it's like, great. We love you. You're our friend and everything, which makes the last mission way more depressing. But before that, in news's speech at the very end of it, he goes, well, the calm will continue. How could you possibly know that, Nuge? I mean, I think it's a good optimistic thing to make everybody feel good, so I get it from that sense. But how could he possibly know that? It hasn't been 10 years. We don't know for sure if Sin's really gone. See, we I took it. Sorry, go ahead. are pretty sure he is, and we're pretty sure that that Sin is gone for good. But they don't know for sure. We stopped Vegnagun, which is the other big monster, but there's no way for news to know if the calm is really going to continue or not. See, I took that as, given the context of the speech and how he's, how all three of them were talking about, you know, how they had been dividing Spira and they had done the wrong thing. Remember how we kept talking about all those times where it really felt like New Yevon and the Youth League were going to go to war? That would not have been a very that that would have been very disruptive. And I think that's what he's getting at by the calm will continue is that sort of thing isn't going to happen now. Oh, okay. I didn't think about it in that sense. I was thinking about it in the sense of no evils going to happen at all going forward. Well, I mean, I get it, like because especially with the, the context of the calm being, you know, sin and the great evil that we're fighting or whatever but that's how i took it was just that you know the fighting is over we, we have peace i'm just kind of substituting calm for peace in that sentence and i think it makes more sense okay yeah i didn't think about it like that but when you say that it makes a lot of sense yeah one thing we absolutely have to talk about before we leave because we've especially after you were so excited about it for pretty much the entire game we have to talk about Blitzball, because we really haven't. So, you're the Blitzball expert here. How do you feel about it? I didn't play Blitzball. You want to say that one more time, just to make sure nobody missed that? I think that's such an important statement, we need to hear it again. Uh, um, 
I didn't play Blitzball in this game. Everybody just let that sink in. <laughs> so I really don't have feelings on it because I never went back and played it in the 200 hours I played. Which kind of says enough about the game as it is because I know you at least tried it and commented that you didn't understand it and didn't like it. I'm sure if I went back and actually understood it, I'd probably like it a lot more, but it just felt like something that I didn't need to do for any reason at all. And so I just never went back and did it because I didn't have to. It was like every other mini game in this game. If I didn't have to do it, I was not spending my time on it because I had better things I could be doing. Saying yeah. that, I completed Creature Creator and I didn't have to, but that's because that plays very heavily into the things that I like. And Blitzball kind of did that for me in the first game, which is why I liked it so much. You can go out and you can learn techniques and you can, you know, get better and raise your stats and everything like that. There was, it obviously wasn't as involved as Creature Creator, but Blitzball in the first game kind of bridged that gap for me. It's like, it's the mini game where I can really spend a lot of time on this and kind of take a break from the game. Whereas in this case, that was very much Creature Creator for me. Because I finished all of the creature creator stuff before I even went into the finale of the game. As soon as I went into Farplane and got 95% completion, I immediately completed um, everything for the creature creator. Yeah, and you have to get that far because all the stuff with uh, Almighty Shinra and the Ome ultimate Omega weapons and stuff, you can't do until you've been to the Farplane. Because you have to, the one monolith doesn't show up until you've been to the far plane. So, but yeah, I don't know. What did you think about it? So I found it interesting. I definitely think the version in 10 was better by like by unquestionably. The one in 10 too is more of a management simulator than a, like if you want to call the original, the original is kind of like a, SSX or something to a regular snowboard game. It's a sports game that's really over the top and ridiculous. And which is part of what made it really fun, at least for me. Exactly. Because I liked learning the new moves. I like, especially when you get invisible shot and then it's basically like I win literally every game now. So it, in that sense, because like, I, and I know Chris is on the same page as me with this, like, I don't really get super into sports games, but I love the ones that don't take themselves super seriously, like NBA Jam or NFL Blitz or SSX, where everything is really impossible and over the top, because I've kind of always been to the impression that, you know, if I just want to see football, I can just go watch regular football. I don't need to actually play it. Whereas, like, NFL Blitz, yeah, I can just, you know, uh, power slam a guy and run 100 yards, and it's like... You know, who even cares? You need 30 yards for first down? Great. Like, th th that's that's fun. Yeah, I'm going to poison all of these people in the middle of the game. Yeah. Or, you know, SSX, I'm going to do a backflip and spin around 10 times before I hit the ground, and that's an easy trick. And then you can put people to sleep, and their bodies are just ragdoll there sitting in the water, which I really hope these people can breathe underwater or I mean, they kind of have to. Something... <laughs> Because if they're just falling asleep in the water and you're just leaving them there until part of the thing was if somebody puts you to sleep, you throw the ball at them and then it hits them and then they wake up. 
even if your thing gets to zero, it'll still hit their body, and then they just kind of wake up. They're like, oh, you can't do that to your keeper, which really sucks because then they just get a free goal on you. But I don't know. I just, like I was telling you, I did play it, and I didn't understand it. But when I saw that it was so vastly different, I didn't care for it really at all. It was very disappointing to me. Yeah, the the, the Blitzball in Ten Two, like I said, if if the first one is like an EA Sports big game, Blitzball in Ten Two was more like a management sim where you're basically just the coach and you're directing their routines to train their stats and stuff, and then you are pretty much completely hands-off during the actual games. And in the sports games that I have played, I've always hated that. See, I actually find those modes really interesting. Those are one of my favorite ways to play it. Like, if I'm going to play an actual realistic simulation game, that's the way I actually like doing it, but that's part of the thing is I would rather just play the -the over-the-top uh the SSX NFL Blitz style, so yeah, I agree. I don't like it as much. And I'm the same way. And, and it's like, I don't care about sports games in general, nor do I really care about sports in general that much, with the exception of hockey. And it's just one of those things where it's like, ugh, you know, I don't really care for the... If I'm going to play a management simulator, I'm going to play something like RimWorld or Civ. I do not care about playing a management simulator for Blitzball. Yeah. Especially because the Blitzball that I really want to play, I'm not getting. I really wish they had flushed it out more and made it easier to understand. Because I know a lot of people, the reason why they didn't really like it, at least the ones that I've talked to, have mostly just kind of said... I really didn't understand it a whole lot, and it really just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. You know, it took a while for me to get it too. It's just one of those things where I was having enough fun with it because Final Final Fantasy X was really the first 3D game that I had ever really played. Because I had, well, not the first 3D game because I had a Nintendo 64 and I had, you know, Mario 3D and everything like that. But it was the first Final Fantasy game that I had ever really played. And Blitzball in general was kind of the first sports game that I really played that wasn't you know, a Nintendo version of football. And it's like, I don't know. I just really enjoyed it for some reason. So I put a lot of time and energy into figuring out exactly how it worked and, and what the best strategies were and who the best players were and everything. It just kind of played more toward, towards that, you know, min maxing everything that I love doing which is why I like Creature Creator so much. And I deter- I now know that there's like secret stats in this game that are based off of your level. I don't know if it's just based off of your level in general, but when I replayed the game and I got those other endings, at a certain point, I was like, screw this. I am. I just want to finish it. So I still had Almighty Shinra and my Machina. So I put two Iron Dukes on both of them, which put almost all of their stats at 255 and both of them were only doing like a thousand damage at level one. And I'm like, what? At level 99, I was doing 20 to 40,000 damage with each of their attacks. What the heck is going on? 
And then as they leveled up, they started doing more and more and more damage. And I'm like, okay, so there's obviously some secret stat somewhere that's taking into account their level when they're actually doing attacks, which was kind of, I don't, Pokemon does that a lot with like their EVs and IVs. And I've never really liked that aspect only because if you're going to have a stat, I should be able to see what it is and know how to manipulate it. And yeah, you can look online and figure out how to manipulate those things, but it's one of those things where if my strength is 255, my strength should be 255. I should know exactly what is going into these attacks. I don't I don't really particularly care for things that kind of keep all those stats secret. I've never really been a big, huge fan of that because I like to know what everything is. And especially with Pokemon, in order to do the most effective stuff, you have to kill things in a specific order and like kill things with certain moves to make those moves better. And it's one of those things that you can't really understand and you can't keep track of. And I've never been a big fan of that because... I want to know what I'm doing. I want to know the effect that the things I'm doing has on how strong my character is and what moves are going to be better based on that. But when it's just some secret stat, you're never going to see that. And that's always been irritating to me because I like games like Disgaea, where the whole point is to know everything about your character and everything that's going on and how you can level them up to the best possible stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's really all Disgaea is, is basically just a get more powerful simulator at the end of the day. Like, I mean, a lot of RPGs are like that, but that really is the bread and butter of Disgaea. That's why you're here. And those are some of my favorite games. I talk about, you know, 200 hours on, Final Fantasy X-2, the amount of hours I've spent on the Disgaea series as a whole would have to be well into the thousands. Oh, yeah, for sure, because you used to do, like, the crazy level 7,500 bosses and stuff. I'm pretty sure my original Disgaea 1 save had over three to 400 hours on it, and that's just Disgaea 1, which I bought before they re-released it for $80 because I really wanted to play Disgaea because you gave, you let me borrow your copy. And I was like, no, I have to have this on my own. I yeah, have to own this game. I got it on the original run before it went out of print. And then, yeah, because I, I know I didn't pay $80 for it. Yeah. Which there's another game that someday I really, really, really want to play on this podcast, which is Skies of Arcadia, but it's also worth a ridiculous amount of money right now. Yeah, Skies of Arcadia, we were talking about that. That's one of, on any given day, it's either my number one or number two favorite video game of all time, and I know you've said for sure it is your number one. Even including Disgaea and everything, I love Skies of Arcadia so much. But it is truly a fantastic game. So how, before we get into last mission, you had asked me an interesting question over text, which was having completed Final Fantasy X-2. Oh, yeah. Which game 
do you like Tanner Ten Two better? And I've thought about it a lot since then, and the answer is difficult. Go on, because Ten Two. Now that I've completed it, I don't think it's a game that I'm going to run through the story again and try for a hundred percent because it was so hard to get a hundred percent the first time. But what I could do is just use my new game plus save and play it again over and over. But it's one of those things where I could definitely see myself beating 10 again over again. But there are pieces and parts of 10 too that I like and feel are vastly superior to 10. Like what? What are some parts? Well, obviously Creature Creator for one. Yes, the Creature Creator is much more interesting than the arena was in 10. It's far and away one of my favorite things because it scratches every single one of, almost every one of those gameplay itches that I have when, you know, I'm playing a game. It's just got all this extra stuff that you can do and figure out the moves of all the new creatures and everything like that. And the dress fears, I think, work better on the creatures here than dress fears in the game where you have to go through each. You mean the garment grids? Yeah, the garment grids where you have to go through each thing to actually activate the ultimate powers of the garment grids. And I I didn't really like that. Again, I think the battle system is better in 10. But even going back to 10 to try to get footage for our YouTube stuff of the podcast, I don't know. I just find myself, you know, hurrying up and making decisions super quick because I'm so used to playing 10-2 at this point. I do still think I like the battle system better in 10. I agree. I know I even, in the very first episode, I was like, 10 is probably my favorite battle system in the entire Final Fantasy series. But the story as a whole, in my opinion, is better in 10-2. There's more of it, and I think it's more interesting. So, I like 10 better. I mean, I also thought about this. This is part of why I asked the question. I definitely think I come down in favor of 10. I do think 10-2 is definitely underrated. It's better than it gets credit for substantially it is not by any means a bad game i don't think it's as good as the original but i also think that there's some of that is just sequels tend to not be as good as the original because it's not a completely new experience that you're forming all these memories around it is a a follow-up and is always inherently going to be compared to the original and things like that that it's burden that you don't necessarily have with the original game but i do like 10 more I I find 10 2 the more interesting game when I think about things like you know how elaborate the system is to try to see everything and so many different interconnected parts and pieces that depend on each other that are very not or very much not the case in 10 which is an extremely linear game where you essentially can't miss anything and uh, so I find 10-2 more interesting as a concept and as an experiment, but I think I but I definitely think 10 is the better game overall. And in my opinion, given everything that I know about both both games, I would think to to me they're more equals because both of them have their problems and both of them have their strengths 
And I think at the end of the day, each one of their strengths and problems kind of balance each each other out. And I, I think that they're both, in, in my opinion, they're both kind of equals. I love 10, and I'll always love 10, but having played everything and getting 100%, 10 doesn't do a good job of fleshing out its side characters. It really doesn't. It's only about the main party. Yeah. And you get bits and pieces of everybody else, but 10-2 develops an entire world. There's so much more world building in 10-2 that, in my opinion, the story is superior. Because I like it when a game develops a world and when a game has other stuff going on that has nothing to do with the party. And 10 is so focused on the party only that you can't go back to any of your previous places because it's a very linear game. Where in this one, you go back and you you see how your actions have impacted an area even within the game itself. And I really like that in a story. And so from my perspective, the games are are more equal because I like the story, I think, a little bit more in 10-2 because of all the world building they did than 10. But the battle system overall in general, I liked more than 10-2. And yeah, I do definitely want to agree there. I do like... I do agree that 10-2 does a much better job of fleshing out the world and expanding on it, and really that's kind of the purpose of 10-2 as the sequel game is, okay, we've already introduced this world and these characters and these concepts, so now how can we extend that? And I do think they do a very good job of that. That and Titus being a whole dream at the end of the game, I am sorry, but I just, I always disliked that. I always thought it was weird and out of nowhere, and I never really liked it in general. And they don't do a good job of explaining it in 10-2, how he comes back. But the fact that he comes back is not why I like it. That's just a, oh, okay, cool. Yuna finally gets what she wants. I like that aspect. But I never really understood it in 10, and I never really cared for that aspect at all. I always thought that was just, really? Yeah. It's almost as if you didn't know how to end the game and you were just like, eh, you know what? It turns out there was a sacrifice after all because the whole point of 10-2 from Titus's perspective is... You mean, you mean 10? Or, or yeah, the whole point of 10, when you look at it from Titus's perspective, is no, there is is going to be life after this and Yuna is going to be around after that. When you look at the game from Yuna's perspective, it is this is what has to happen. I have to sacrifice myself in order to save everybody. But from Titus's perspective, it's like no, there is another way. But then Titus finds out that he's going to have to sacrifice himself. And so it's like the message of the game in general doesn't really change at all. It just moves from one person to another. And it's kind of like you save everybody, but you sacrifice yourself permanently. And it's like, 
that defeats the theme of the game from Titus's perspective, which was, no, I can save everyone. And I never really liked that. That's a fair way of, of looking at it. And I had some conversation outside of this that I don't, I don't want to necessarily go into, but recently about having the themes of 10 about how, you know, we'll know there has to be another way. We and, brought up Skies of Arcadia. You might as well. So I had a conversation about how the 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 themes of Final Fantasy X are actually not dissimilar to Dark Souls, whereas they're both. I guess again, if you look at it from Yuna's perspective, they're both about you know walking the same path as countless other people before you to either whether you're doing the pilgrimage to defeat sin or trying to rekindle the flame, you know, you're making a sacrifice for the sake of the world, but it's all still relatively futile in the long run because you know that it's just going to happen again and somebody else is going to have to walk the same path. And so there's like a sort of melancholiness about the entire game of knowing that what you're doing is necessary, but it's only a temporary reprieve. And then you basically get the exact same thing when Titus takes that responsibility on himself and sacrifices himself. So that way, Yuna is also saved in this whole thing. So, yeah, because at first I was thinking about it and I was kind of disagreeing with you. But now that I think about it, it, Titus does the same thing. He sacrifices himself permanently. So, like I said, it's a difficult question because... I really like them both. And it's hard for me to put one over the other when I sit back and I think about the pros and cons for each game. Because I like them both for different reasons. And that's not to say that the story in 10 is bad. I just prefer the story in 10 too. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I... There are parts of the story in 10 I prefer. Like I said, I, I really like that it's... I liked the beginning of 10 a lot, I should say, where it was very low stakes. I found myself enjoying... Because I know I talked about that. I found myself enjoying it a little less when it went back to the typical, okay, we got to go save the world now from Vagnagun. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just I found the the lower stakes kind of refreshing because so few games, every game is about saving the world at the almost, or almost every game is about saving the world. Sometimes it's nice to just sort of be relatively chill. I did just want to loop back very quickly and just say, we've hammered on that guide a little bit for being not ideal, but I do want to get feeling like it miss it's missing pieces and things like that. But I feel like I would be doing a disservice if I didn't say, in general, the guy was pretty thorough, and I don't want to be ragging on some guy who put all of his, who put this effort into making this really long thing, and I kind of get that you miss stuff, because I don't, almost don't know how you couldn't with a game that has that many flags and elaborate things, so I guess I just wanted to, you know, say, we appreciate, I appreciate what you did guy who put the guide together and thank you because this experience would have been much more miserable if we hadn't had that to look at. Oh yeah. I 100% agree. I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to wrap up our discussion of 10 2 without at least looping back to say, despite some of the negative things we said, 
that guide was essential and I'm really glad it existed. And I, I'm so grateful for it, not even just with this, for people who put all the time and effort into writing up guides and stuff. Cause there are so many things where I look up a guide on how to do something and I go, I have absolutely no idea how I was expected to figure this out. And I probably would have been stuck here forever or never done this thing. If not for this guide. That comment in general reminds me of my favorite quote from Futurama that I've ever heard, which is the episode where Bender meets the the, 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 the episode where the sentient galaxy or nebula thing. Yeah. Yeah. The sentient nebula thing. It says, if you're doing something right, nobody will notice it at all. But if you're doing something wrong, well, I, I think it ends there. It, 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 the, the original quote ends there. Yeah. If you do something right, they'll never know you did anything at all. Exactly. Which then implies the fact that the only thing that we ever said about the guide was negative stuff. Cause it's like, it was negative in the sense of, Hey, we noticed this thing missed it. And that totally screwed us. But the guide as a whole, you're right. I would have never made it through this game without guides and other people that have put their time and energy into that stuff, which is why we started, you know, putting it in every single video saying, Hey, this is the guide that we use because the guide we were using and again, I'm grateful for that, but it just was not detailed enough. And yeah. and he or or she was significantly detailed in this guide. And yeah, things were missed here and there, but it was also very clear that they put their own inflections on things and they put themselves in the guide because they kept mentioning references to like Star Trek because there's a item called Enterprise. Well, and they also they, yeah. they referenced the ship being Enterprise over and over and over. So it was it was cool to see that you know while they were actually writing this guide, they were actually sitting there and putting their own kind of spin on things as well. So yeah, I'm extremely grateful for it. And every single time I finished a mission and I didn't have anything negative to say about the guide was basically me going, yeah, everything is. So done right because I wouldn't have done this without it. Yeah, and you know, sort of on that other subject, that's something I could sympathize with a lot, and I'm sure Chris can too, because you know, we both work in technology and we're both on the administrative side. And so, like, these are conversations I, I've directly had with my boss, and you probably have too. It's just if no one's talking about me, that means I'm doing a good job because people only talk about you when something is wrong. People talk about what a great job I'm doing all the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, on to a more depressing note, which was last mission. Yeah, so last mission <laughs> is... They've been away for three months. Apparently, they went their separate ways. And when they get back together, the first thing that they do is constantly bicker between one another. Yeah, so they're getting together for one last ride, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, they're, they're they're coming back together for too fast, too YRP. I gotta, I'll, I'll, I'll too there's, Celsius. There's something there. Too Celsius. I don't know. Yeah, but that doesn't really rhyme that much. It's got to be. I used to say too fast, too furriest for my for my dog. 
I would constantly just go around the house being like, too fast, too furious. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Anyway, I, anyway. So they all get letters from some mystery someone who tell them to go climb, to go travel to the top of some tower to see something worth seeing. And first of all, the gameplay is completely different here. This is a location that didn't exist in the game at all. I think at one point, Payne mentions like the machine faction discovered it relatively recently or something. Yeah, it was this ancient tower that at the top just kind of looked like Sauron. <laughs> yeah, like the Eye of Sauron. Um, but the gameplay is completely different. It's uh, in... In the remastered collection, it's actually a separate thing on the main menu when you're picking what game you want to play. There's 10, 10, 2, and then there's also that um, video that bridges the gap between 10 and 10, 2, and then there's this last mission here at the very end. And so what's interesting is that they basically yeah, completely redid everything and essentially built an entire new game with an entirely new you know, set of mechanics and stuff, because now all of a sudden it's a roguelike where you have to climb this tower. You just pick one of the people to play as in typical roguelike fashion. You're only just Yuna, just Riku or just pain. And you're just going to climb this tower. And, you know, if you die, you get thrown out of the tower and you're all the way back to level one and you lose all your stuff. It's like, Mystery Dungeon or Shira and the Wanderer or whatever, any of those other games you've ever played, uh, it's not quite like it's not quite as brutal as say you know NetHack because if you die you just get to start from the bottom and like the things that you have extracted you get to keep you don't lose completely everything and there are ways to leave without losing your stuff but it's still you know it's it's a much more hardcore experience than pretty much any other Final Fantasy. And if you are watching all of the scenes, it's hardcore in another way. Yeah. Which is super depressing because apparently, so it turns out, you know, once you get, I think, halfway up or whatever, Payne is the one that actually sent them all there because they all get a letter in the very beginning of it, which kind of sets them on this whole whole, whole path, yeah. Whole path in general. And yeah, Payne confesses partway up that she's the one who did it because she wanted to bring them back together to have an adventure again, like old one times. La one last ride. Yeah. The the Fast and Furious Spear Adrift, <laughs> where at the end they, had, they climbed a mountain and they had to drift down on the Celsius in order to beat the Celsius King, which in this case was Brother. Sea King. That that was CK, which is what everyone called him the entire That that uh Calmlands race you were wanting the entire game. Turns out it was last mission all along. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. I, like I, I wasn't expecting it to show up in last mission, but when it was there, like going down that mountain, they're all standing there and they're all standing there oblivious at the end talking about how, oh, well, we've all changed and, and everything, and we're basically never going to see each other again. You know, this whole mountain is activating in the background, and it's setting up the track for uh, the Spira's Drift. <laughs> and, you know, when Brother comes out of nowhere calling himself CK and starts, you know, drifting down the mountain with the, with the Celsius, like, 
it was it was awesome. I had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> but no, for, for real though, uh, sadly, if only that could actually be true, because that would be way cooler than the actual plot. <laughs> yeah. So the whole time you go up, um, they're all talking about like what they've been up to in the three months, and it basically feels like everything sucks, but in like a realistic way. It's like it kind of feels like how you have to think the heroes kind of end up because at the end of every game where you've saved the world, what could you possibly do that's going to ever trump that in your life? Yeah, exactly. So Riku has basically spent all of her time, you know, kind of helping everybody. Big surprise that Clasco still needs a ton of help, and I, he's still constantly asking people for stuff. I, I will say, Riku running down this list of, like, 50 things she's been doing and working on in the last three months was probably my favorite scene, just because it was just really funny. Like, because she basically catches you up with so many things. Because, oh, she's been working with the Ronzo and like working to bring peace between the Ronzo and the LeBlanc syndicate because LeBlanc wants to go explore stuff on the mountain. Oh, and she's got Sid hooked up with Awaka so he can try to make money on some new business venture. And, oh, she's helping class go. Both the syndicate and Awaka and Sid wanted to make use of the hot springs. I mean, no surprise there that LeBlanc wanted to make use of the hot springs, (laughs) but neither of them wanted to talk to the Ronzo about it. And Kamari's like, bro... No. No. You're you're not going to do that. Listen here, my dude. <laughs> not happening. You listen here. And so Yuna has apparently just been sitting around with Titus telling him this story for the last 3 months. Well, and she's she's been very domestic, for lack of a better word. Like she she talks about how you That's know a she, terrible word. No, but I mean it. Like domestic in the sense of like she doesn't want to go do stuff anymore she's basically in retirement and that's fine that's good she's earned it oh yeah i 100 percent agree with you but she talks about you know i just i want to spend my days just you know relaxing and walking along the beach and cooking dinner and things like that. she even specifically says cooking dinner which is why i thought of domestic yeah i know i remember that and then i was like ugh, i domestic sounds like a terrible word there she just wants her quiet life and nothing wrong with domestic, but the word in general just seems so negative. Whenever I hear the word used, it always seems like kind of a negative connotation of, well, this is all they're doing. That's fair. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with Yuna wanting a quiet life. Now she saved the world twice. I don't think there's anything wrong with anyone wanting a quiet life. No, 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 no. But Riku takes a lot of umbrage to it, and they keep getting into fights. Oh, yeah. Riku comes off really unfortunate in that thing, of all of them, just because, like, okay, she's been doing so much stuff, but she seems to be, like, she actively judging everyone else for not wanting to do everything all the time. Yeah, because Pain kind of goes off and does her own thing as well. It, it, although, again, like, the entire story... I didn't really see her go into a whole lot of detail on what she was doing. But at one point, she says she's she's writing a book about what happened. Oh, that's right. I forgot about and that. And both Yuna and Riku were like, well, wh- why why write down what happened? Who cares about that? And it's like, 
the whole thing was about like learning about the past and all of a sudden neither of you care about the past what's happening well and then yuna's like oh i just wouldn't thank you for the writing type and it's like what like it it kind of seems like all three of them are being catty for no reason and yeah pain is just she just wanted to get everybody together to see them again yeah which I, is very different from her whole character in the in 10 2 yeah everybody felt really weird Riku just wanted to judge everybody. Yuna just wanted to sit at home and do nothing, which I 100% relate to. <laughs> yeah. And Payne was just like, listen, you know, I want to, I want people to know this story. I want people to understand this story from our perspective. And in this case, my perspective, because she was the recorder during the Crimson stuff. Yeah. So it makes anything- complete sense that she would want to be the person behind the camera and write a story about it. For for me, pain makes the most sense of everybody. Well, not that Yuna doesn't make sense, because 100%, if I was Yuna, I'd be like, nah, I do not want to do anything anymore. Yeah, and no, but I feel like... That fits Payne's archetype, everything that we know about her, exactly. Yeah, and I also feel like of the three of them... She came off the best just because Yuna and Riku were sniping at each other basically constantly. Yeah, and Payne was just was just there going, "Can we stop, please? Can we like just be happy that we see each other again after all this time?" And Riku and Yuna are just basically fighting with one another because Riku's saying, "Well, you're lazy and you're doing nothing and, you know, I'm doing all this stuff to help and where are you and Yuna's like, I don't want to do that stuff anymore. I just want to stay home. And I 100% relate to that. I don't yeah. want to go anywhere and do anything. I don't have money to go anywhere and do anything. It's like, sometimes you just want to sit at home and just enjoy, you know, relax and unwind. Especially, you know, <laughs> she doesn't have a full-time job or whatever, but... But again, I mean, like you're gonna you're gonna. She look had at the, enough full time job for a lifetime. Yeah, like you're gonna look at the person who, you know, literally saves the world and be like, yeah, but what are you doing for us now? Twice. Yeah. Which kind of was a running theme in the second game because of things like what Gippo was saying. We can't always rely on you to be there. Like, I mean, she was even in the intent too was actively getting involved in everybody's business. So to have her be the one going. You know, I really am just done with that. Was I mean, it was good for her character development, but it was kind of weird because Riku always seemed to be the one who was like, I'm not sure this is a good idea. And Yuna was like, no, we're going to go ahead and do this. Yeah. And then suddenly Riku is getting involved in everybody's stuff and Yuna's like, I don't know. And then it, it's just, I don't know. It just seems so, it seemed like such an unhappy ending. I feel like, I think the word I would use to describe the feeling of last mission is melancholy. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're there, but like there's just this feeling of dissatisfaction throughout the entire game. And it's not even just for them, because like Payne's talking about how, you know, she hasn't even seen Gipple, Nuge, and Barrelai for months because they've been off going and doing their apology thing. Like, nobody, it doesn't feel like anybody's. Or she mentions that both U- New Yevon and the Youth League have fallen apart already after just a couple months. Yeah. And it's just like, 
It just feels like everything is well, just it's not kind that of... they fell apart. They disbanded specifically. Yeah, but because Gipple and well, not Gipple, but News and Barilai, that's their message in the in, in the ending of Ten was, "We're sorry. We should have never done that. We should have never pitted the planet against itself." We should have never pitted Spira against itself, and we should have been unified. And I think that was one of the good things that happened in the last mission was them disbanding both groups so everybody can once again kind of just get along and act as a single Spira instead of a separated Spira. Sort of, and I get that. I guess I just feel like like the the, the finale of the stuff with the Youth League, after you do the tournament in Chapter 5... Where, um, is it Lucille or Alma? I think it's Lucille, right? It's Lucille. Yeah, because Alma was like the assistant. Lucille gives that speech about, you know, the Youth League's going to be focused on trying to make the world a better place and stuff, and it just feels like, oh, and then two months later, they were just completely gone. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that her her group can't still make things a better place. I think they disbanded in the sense that they are done with what they were doing before. And I think that instead of having one side keep the name and just lump everybody into one, it makes more sense to just end and start anew. Maybe so, but... Because there has to be something. There has to be something. Otherwise, people are just going to get confused and not know what to do again. Because that's why... Youth League and New Yevon started in the first place is because people had no idea how to spend their time and energy. Yes, without... And even Trema specifically says something about this in the Via Infinita thing is that without sin as a focus point for everybody to unite against, everybody was just aimless. And Trema was kind of getting to the point where people are going to fight regardless. You have to give them something to fight. Yeah. Which is kind of a depressing message, but... But to be fair, then we proceed to beat up Trema, so that's clearly not the message we're supposed to take from that. Well, yeah. But then that does feel... So by the time you get all the way up the tower, essentially the message at the end, and symbolically I thought they did a decent job with this because they get to the top and find what they call a worthless treasure. But there's a discussion about, well, I thought there was supposed to be something we were supposed to see up here. And then Payne says, you don't see it because I do. And I, the symbolism of what happened, I thought was good because all three of them wind up focusing on a different thing that they're quote unquote supposed to see because like pain watches a shooting star and, you look, watches some butterflies and Riku watches some birds flying. And it kind of was a somewhat, you know, quiet way of establishing, okay, well they are all on different pages now. But then the at the end of the day, when it's over, the message is basically, yeah, okay, we're all just going to go our separate ways because we just don't get along anymore. And it's like, well, that's such a... Well, no, because I think they said that we could still be friends. But they're going to go their separate ways because... And they even specifically The paths say, that they're going down are different, but that doesn't mean they can't be friends. But then they even also say we've, we may never see each other again, and that's okay. Ugh. And it's just... On the one hand, it does kind of continue the messages that we were talking about of, you know, remember the past, but don't let it bind you. And okay, in this case, they are different people and going different directions, but 
that is such a I don't know, like I said, I guess melancholy, like I said, it's such, it's a very depressing experience compared to the main game. But it's an experience you would expect after somebody saved the world, like what else is there to tell? Yeah, I, I mean, I can totally understand and that I think that that is something that is not explored terribly often is the okay, the world is safe now what? And like I said, that's part of what I liked about 102 or whatever and trying to see people move on with their lives, but it is rare to see it like because that's really what last mission is entirely about and it does kind of illustrate, you know, well, things just aren't ever going to be the same and that's just how it is. But I can tell you what was going to happen after Go on. Final Fantasy. Makelin left, right? We saw him send himself, so to Correct. speak. Correct. not dead. <laughs> I mean, he's very dead, whether or not he's unsent. He's dead, but he's not gone. Okay. Makelin is still out there. And this game implies that the new game would have been all about Riku and her journey. We pick up at the beginning of the game. Riku visits Yuna in Besaid, but tragedy has befallen Besaid. Waka has unfortunately been killed. <laughs> unfortunately. They suspect murder. Murder most foul. <laughs> Riku... And Lulu and Waka's son, um, that guy. I can't remember his name either. It's fine. All go on a journey for the whodunit of Waka's death. We go through the whole game and Riku, she learned so much throughout this story. She grows as a person. We visit pain. Payne is now a successful author and she's throwing it in Riku and Yuna's face because Riku, Yuna and Payne of occasionally like in between chapters, they're going to, to meet up at, at the proverbial coffee shop to kind of catch up and see where things are going. And, and Yuna, obviously she has this deep connection with Waka and she cares uh, about his death, especially since, you know, she got to know him more uh, through everything that's happened. And and Titus is there and and he doesn't really care as much about Waka. <laughs> um, and it turns out Waka, man, similar to Clasco, he just bad times had befallen him afterwards. He it turns out he was more. He took that message of Chapu to heart, and he was more brother to his son than father. And that they just had a bad relationship. They had a bad relationship. But his his death really brought them closer together in a sense. Um, because his son now he wants to know what happened. He wants to get revenge and and Lulu's just more about like watching over her son and and she's like I'm going to learn Terra magic and completely destroy everything. Lulu does go a little dark side. I was about to say, this sounds like a fairly dark story, more than I was expecting. 
Lulu does go a bit dark side there for a while, and and people are real concerned about what's what's going to happen because they know if Lulu wanted to, she could easily wipe out entire life on the planet. But Lulu, they they get leads and they get they start to figure things out, and the whole time, Maitland is there as a shadow master behind everything. See, he's still mad. That Len and Shuyin and then Riku and and Lulu, or Riku and Yuna and and Titus has has ruined her plans yet again, and he wanted to get revenge on Yuna for everything that happened. But he realized Titus is not real; he's a dream that is currently physical at the moment. But getting rid of him would be impossible, as the Faith are keeping him around. So the only way he knows to get back at her is to destroy the only other man in her life with the exception of Kamari, who's not there anymore because he's doing his own thing on Mount Gagazet, was to destroy Waka. And and Maeklin has now, he picked up the, the, the ruined corpse of Sin and Vegnagun and turned them into a Sin-Gun hybrid <laughs> that he himself has now inhabited. And we kind of, it kind of has this. Sidnagun. What's that? Sidnagun. Or Vegnin. However. Or Vegnagun. Vegnasin doesn't work. Well, Vegnagun. Vegnagun. Sidnagun. Oh! And LeBlanc is there too. And she comes with you on this mission because she's mad. That this thing has now called itself Signagun, which is very close to Signakit. Her and Nuj have gotten together and they have <laughs> they have wonderful kids who are also super powered. They have taken over the Kinder Guardians, which have now really become the Tinder Guardians. Uh, not not Tinder. Um I don't know, teenager Dians. Teenage d- Tenagent ninjas. <laughs> and so we continue on our story and, and Lulu has just come back from the brink and and we didn't have to fight her. She she understood that she's like, listen, this is bad. This is not good. She's looking back and reflecting on everything, watching the spheres of Len and Shuyin and and what happened with Sin and Yuna. And she's like, this is wrong, what I'm doing. I can't destroy everybody, even though I definitely could, because I am far better than literally anyone else in the series, save for possibly Aaron, who unfortunately is not with us anymore. He's the only one that could potentially stop her on her rampage of magical destruction. But moment of silence for Arn. Okay. But we find out that Maeklin this entire time has been been against all of this and, and he got revenge for Waka or, or for Yuna by, by by taking care of Waka and taking him out of the picture. And in the end you have this really nice scene between Riku, Waka's son, um that guy and and Lulu and it's just it ends and it, and and it's so nice and it's just everything wraps up and it all kind of ends with everybody sitting at there having a nice delicious coffee uh and 
you know, Titus comes in and he starts doing bliss eights and they all kind of get thrown out of the coffee shop because they're like, guys, like what is going on? Yuna didn't help us this time. It was Riku. We're really confused. There's this another at the very end, you know, Maeklin actually, they defeat him, but he kind of becomes a good guy. And at the very end of the game, he's the one giving the speech saying, I'm sorry I tried to kill all of you, but, you know, I didn't. So, good. So it's all good now. And and it turns out people are not happy about that at all. <laughs> they are pretty mad. Uh, they send Maeklin... And it's essentially game over, but there is a perfect ending, but I just, I don't know if I can talk about it yet. Um, Still in development. People really need to have 100% completion. And really the only way to do that is to like, comment, and subscribe. (laughs) 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 You gotta have 100% completion on video games cover to cover to get this one. In order to get the super secret special ultimate platinum true ending. (laughs) <laughs> but with that, how do you think Final <laughs> Fantasy X-3 would have went down? <laughs> I can't even respond after that one. Oh, and monkeys have taken over the planet. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. They're in between 10-2 and 10-3. There was a Planet of the Apes type situation, uh, but with Planet of the Squatter Monkeys. Uh, fortunately, though, that was kind of existed in like an alternate universe, so... I don't really think it has much to do with the plot, but it it may come back at some point. With that, I think that's going to have to wrap up our coverage of Final Fantasy X-2 here on Video Games Cover to Cover. As for what comes next, we've decided our next major game is going to be The Witcher 3. However, in between now and then, we'd kind of like to have a bit of a break from mega-long games, and we're going to start off with FTL, uh, also known as Faster Than Light. Yeah, for at least a couple weeks. We'll see how long we we, we want to do this. But for at least the f- a couple of episodes, we're going to focus on basically little one-shots of games that we can probably cover in a single episode of what we would like to talk about. And some of these are either longtime favorites that we've played a little bit with, like with FTL or ones that were we just really wanted a good excuse to get around to playing, but probably aren't big enough to devote an entire series to. And with that, new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, I hate Waka, but I love Final Fantasy X too. <laughs>